Hello, explorers, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Now, many of you know that I'm located at Caltech, which I think is a wonderful place to be because of all of the cutting-edge space research that happens here. But for those people who prefer to look down at the ground and wonder what's happening deep within the Earth, this is an equally important institution. The Caltech Seismological Laboratory serves as a focal point for earthquake information in Southern California and is the epicenter for some of the most influential earthquake research in the world. So, joining me today to talk about some literal groundbreaking science is my friend and geophysicist, Ollie Stevenson. Welcome back, everybody, to Strange New Worlds. It's Mike Wong, and today I am happy to be sitting across from Ollie Stevenson. We're going to talk about earthquakes in Star Trek because Ollie is a geophysicist and a seismologist here at Caltech. Ollie, why don't you give a brief introduction to yourself for all of our listeners? So, yeah, hi, I'm Ollie. I uh, hail from foreign shores from England. And as you said, I'm a, a geophysicist and I study broadly speaking, earthquakes and deformation caused by earthquakes. And I use satellites and computers to try and tell us more about the state of the world. And I'm also, outside of my research, I'm very interested in science communication. So I run a website based here at Caltech called Caltech Letters, where we get students to write about their research for a general audience. And I had the pleasure of being able to write a piece for Caltech Letters earlier in the year. So you can visit, what is it, caltechletters.org? Yep. yep. And check that out, along with all of the other amazing content out there on Caltech Letters. My piece was on Pluto, because part of my research here at Caltech as a graduate student was on the atmosphere of Pluto. And so I hope you go and check that article out. Hopefully it's a fun read. I tried to make it as uh, as intriguing as possible by starting off with a hook where I've actually stolen something from somebody and you'll you'll find out what I steal if you go there to caltechletters.org. Ollie, you're the founder of Caltech Letters, right? One of the founders, yeah, yeah. One of the founders. Who else uh, is involved with this big project? So we've got quite a few grad students. It's a grad student run, totally run by grad students here at Caltech. So We've got a couple of other people in my lab who were co-founders with me. We've got people from across the Caltech campus because I think we have a a widespread interest in writing about science and there's not a lot of outlets for people to write here at Caltech. If you want to talk about your science to a general audience, you can either kind of post on your own Facebook wall or you can maybe publish something and get picked up by the media. But there's a big space in between there where people like like yourself, who who wrote a great article for us about stealing from a 10-year-old child... um, (laughs) There's, there's not really much of an outlet for that, and so we wanted to put that together, and we've had a really great response so far, which is, uh, I think, really awesome. There's clearly a desire to write and a desire for people to read this kind of product. So, you know, Caltech is a wonderful, small, but very high-powered research institution, but one thing that I've found out here in my past six years is that you kind of have to make your own outreach opportunities, and I think that's something that the graduate students, um, especially people like Ollie, have really taken the initiative on is to help people who are doing amazing science spread the news of that science and their work 
to the general public. And so I'm really happy to have Ollie on board Strange New Worlds because that is exactly the mission of this podcast as well. And uh, to have another person who is as invested and as enthusiastic about science communication on this podcast is absolutely wonderful. So yeah, I'll put a link to Caltech Letters in the show notes in case any of you are too lazy to type in Caltech Letters into your (laughs) URL browser. I know I am that lazy. So yes, uh, I will make it easy on you. Just click the link in the show notes and you'll head over to where you can experience all sorts of wonderful Caltech related research told in a way that is engaging and um, accessible for everyone. So uh, we're here to talk about earthquakes, right, Ollie? Yeah. And unfortunately, there is no Star Trek episode or movie that really centers around an earthquake as the major plot device. That's right, not yet. Soon, one day, we'll see a credit by Ollie Stevenson in a Star (laughs) Trek episode. Um, And I'll ask you about that later on, what you think an earthquake can do as as a major plot device in a science fiction show. But before that, I want to tell my favorite Star Trek and earthquake story. And it actually doesn't have anything to do with a particular plot or episode in Star Trek, but with a real world story that I heard actor Armin Shimmerman tell at a Star Trek convention. By the way, I'm going to a Star Trek convention later tonight, to the big one in Las Vegas. (laughs) And so I'm looking forward to that and all the interesting stories that I'll hear. But one of my favorite stories, actor Armin Shimmerman, who played Quark on Deep Space Nine. Quark is a Ferengi. He's an alien, alien bartender, one of my favorite characters in all of Star Trek, I believe. He's got these huge ears and a bald, kind of bumpy forehead. And playing a Ferengi, Armin Shimmerman has to get into the Paramount lot very early in the morning to put all of this prosthetics and makeup on. So he gets into work roughly about 4 a.m. And he's sitting in the trailer getting his makeup and and prosthetics applied to him. And at 4.31, a magnitude 6.7 earthquake hits Northridge. And this is a pretty strong earthquake. And Armin remembers that uh, it sent a fellow actor who was in the trailer with him uh, from New York who had never experienced an earthquake before, just cowering and screaming and sobbing on the ground. And Armin's pretty concerned. He, he gets up out of his chair and tries to find a cell phone, which in 1994, when this story took place, was not such an easy task. But he eventually finds a cell phone and calls home. And um, his wife tells him that there has been quite a bit of destruction to his house and she's kind of terrified and panicking so Armin tries to leave the Paramount lot to go home but the security guard waves him down and says stop you can't leave the lot and Armin's like what are you talking about there was just an earthquake it's an emergency I need to get home and the security guard just points to his face and it's just like look at you you're in makeup <laughs> you you can't leave the lot in your Ferengi getup. that's that's against policy and Armin's just like stop me you know i'm going i'm going to go check on my wife check on my home and make sure everything's okay so he gets in his car and he drives off and the security guard lets him go and armin remembers that on his way home he stopped at an intersection and this other car pulls up and he watches as this other driver turns and stares at him and just the other driver's mouth just goes slack His eyes go really wide and looks through his window at Armin, ogling in amazement, in total amazement, that 
there's an alien <laughs> driving a Ford Explorer. And uh, I, I can just imagine what it would be like to be that, that other driver. Just, oh my God, there was just an earthquake and there's an alien now driving the streets of LA. Like, what's happening? Are they invading? <laughs> um, but anyway, when Armin gets home, um, you know, his wife just took one look at him in his Ferengi makeup and starts laughing and it totally diffuses the situation, uh, broke the tension. It was, uh, everything was all good. Um, and so that's my favorite Star Trek and earthquake story. So we're, we're pretty prone to earthquakes down here in, in LA, and it's no surprise that during the filming of Star Trek, such an earthquake actually happened. But Ollie, can you tell me why earthquakes happen? Because they're pretty frightening events. And what is the process by which an earthquake occurs on our planet? So an earthquake is basically a sudden release of stress on faults in the Earth's lithosphere. So the Earth's lithosphere is the outer layer of the Earth, which is the the brittle layer, so it deforms by cracking rather than kind of slowly deforming more viscously. We have to zoom out first. The Earth is made up of a series of these lithospheric plates, these brittle plates, and these plates move past each other at millimetres to centimetres every year, kind of at the, the rate your fingernails grow roughly. And as they move past each other, these plates at their interfaces, so particularly, for example, the San Andreas Fault, which runs all the way through California and is at the interface between the Pacific and the North American plates, as these two plates move past each other, they get stuck at the, at the fault. And this causes a buildup of energy, of stress energy, in the same way that by stretching an elastic band, you, you build up energy in that elastic band. And as you know, if you stretch an elastic band far enough, eventually it snaps, it breaks. And kind of by a similar process, uh, if you build up enough stress in the Earth's crust, eventually at a fault in the Earth's crust, it ruptures. And so you get a sudden motion of the Earth's crust, which then sends out these seismic waves in every direction, kind of analogously to the way I speak to you, I create vibrations which then travel through the air. That's kind of the analogous process. You're kind of getting these waves that are a lot like sound waves traveling through the Earth's crust except they're a lot larger. They then create this this severe shaking, for example, in Northridge in 1994, which is the last major earthquake to hit the Los Angeles area and create substantial damage. Northridge was the most expensive natural disaster, I think, in American history up until that point and was later surpassed by Katrina and other, other natural disasters. So that's the basic process. You also get, as well as, well as the shaking, if these earthquakes happen underwater and you get a lot of motion of the seafloor, you can also get tsunamis, which are these big waves that, for example, hit Japan in 2011 and have previously hit the Pacific Northwest and will do again. Uh, so yeah, that's basically what's going on. Big plates moving past each other and sudden releases of energy that create shaking. Wow, so it seems like earthquakes are inevitable. Definitely, yeah, yeah. You- we just can't really do anything about them because our earth is made up of all of these broken lithospheric plates as you said and they're all moving and rubbing against each other and every once in a while they'll slip Mm. and uh, cause an earthquake so here in los angeles we're always warned to be prepared for an earthquake because one could happen really at any time in particular, there's this concept of the big one, in, in quotes. You know, the idea that there could be a really catastrophic seismic event here in L.A. And in fact, there was a reference to the big one in an episode of Star Trek Voyager called Future's End, where the crew of the USS Voyager actually travels back in time to 1996. Have you ever been to Southern California, Chicote? No. 
After the Hermosa quake in 2047, this entire region sank under 200 meters of water. It became one of the world's largest coral reefs, home to thousands of different marine species. The boardwalk that the crew was walking on would no longer be there in the 24th century when Voyager came from, because in the year 2047, the big one hit. So is it possible to predict earthquakes? Can we say with any certainty that a big one will hit in a certain year? So, yeah, we can't predict earthquakes. It's an important thing to emphasize. Whenever I get in an Uber or Lyft and I am speaking with the driver, when I, they find out I'm a geophysicist, the first thing they'll say is like, oh, so when's the big one coming? Can't, can't you tell us? <laughs> and so I'm, I kind of, I think I disappoint them quite a lot uh, when they're like, yo, the one thing you should be useful for is predicting earthquakes and you still haven't done that. So what are, <laughs> what are you doing with your time? So we can't predict earthquakes. I think the um, in, in the Star Trek episode, they say that, yeah, it's under 200 meters of water after, after the big one. It's important to to emphasize that so the big one is, is a big earthquake that will happen on the San Andreas Fault. But the San Andreas Fault is what we call a strike-slip fault, meaning it moves horizontally. And so it's not going to cause California to be submerged under 200 meters of water. Well, that's good. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a relief. In a lot of these movies you see where California gets submerged. So 2012, for example, that's, that's not the way earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault work. But, yeah, as I said, we can't predict earthquakes. What we do instead is we, we try and forecast earthquakes. And these are a much rougher predictions. They're probabilistic predictions. So we say that, for example, L.A. has a 60% chance of an earthquake bigger than magnitude 6.7 in the next 30 years. I think that's that's the rough prediction based on the Uniform California Earthquake Rupture Forecast, which is the catchy title for, I think, the USSGS and, and the Southern California Earthquake Center's earthquake forecasting experiment. So that's the best we can do at the moment. And it's interesting, I think, to think why it's so much harder to do any kind of earthquake prediction Whereas we can do forecasting of the weather that is really quite accurate. You can decide whether or not to you know, bring an umbrella or beach shorts outside with you when you, when you go outside. In California, it's always beach shorts. But um, you know, where I'm from in England, it's generally an umbrella. So you can get these five-day weather forecasts that are really accurate. And when we're looking at the weather, we can see lots and lots of weather cycles happening. You can see you know, the seasons come and go every year. You can make observations of these. You can fly satellites around the Earth and make observations of how much water there is in the atmosphere, the wind speeds, all these different kinds of things. And this allows you to build really good physical models of what's happening. And it also allows you to know what the current state of the atmosphere is. And by combining a physical model and the current state, you can then make predictions about the future. So in the case of earthquakes, what we're trying to do exactly the same thing. We're trying to build a physical model and use the current state of the Earth to make a prediction about the future. That's what you would try and do to predict an earthquake, and you would then try and come up with a prediction of the time, the magnitude, and the location, which is what a prediction is. But with earthquakes, it's all underground. So you need to know about how much stress is built up in the crust, but we're interested in what's happening 10 to 20 kilometers below the ground. And the deepest we've ever dug is a few kilometers. It costs millions of dollars to get down there. So we know very little about what the current state of stress actually is in the Earth's crust. So it's like asking when will a rubber band snap when you don't know how much you've already stretched it. Mm. And also another problem is that these earthquake cycles, so these large earthquakes, they only recur every 100 to 1,000 years, depending on which fault you're on. So for example, the Cascadia subduction zone in the Pacific Northwest last ruptured in the year 1700, and so we haven't seen, in modern times, we haven't seen a rupture occur on the subduction zone. So we don't know what they really look like. The only reason we know it happened 
was there was this orphan tsunami that hit Japan that would, there was no written record of it, of it happening anywhere else and no one knew what, what the origin was and then they managed to piece it together to figure out there had been this rupture in the year 1700. So if we haven't seen the cycles of what these earthquakes looked like and we don't know what the state of stress is in the Earth's crust, it's very, very difficult to make predictions about what's actually going to happen in the future. So all we can do is, is this forecasting. Very interesting. So it's sort of like saying, drawing the analogy back to weather, you can't say that on September 25th, 2019, we're going to have a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. But you could say in broader terms that we will probably have a hurricane that year of a certain magnitude, but you can't pinpoint the exact time or, or, or strength of a particular hurricane. Yes, yeah, exactly. So it's, it, it does have some analogy with long-term um, weather and climate forecasting mm-hmm. because these systems are what we, we call chaotic, meaning they have great sensitivity to the initial conditions. So we never have a perfect knowledge of what the atmosphere looks like. And so once you go beyond five to 10 days, you start to get much, much worse predictions. Mm-hmm. Because even if you have a very, very good physical model, tiny variations in the way you start that off are going to lead to large variations further down the, the road. This is kind of the butterfly effect. You know, a butterfly flaps its wings and around the other side of the world, you end up with a hurricane. And we have a similar problem with, with earthquakes, except we know even less about the system because we can't drill down into the earth. Right. So tiny variations in stress in the crust can lead to massively different behaviors further down the road. And given that we're interested for earthquakes in what's going to happen over the next thousand years, because often that's how long faults take to have their major rupture, it's a really, really difficult and probably an impossible problem. And it attracts all kinds of kooks and cranks and pseudoscientists to the earthquake prediction problem, hmm. uh, which is kind of a shame because then the public is, is not entirely well informed about what it actually means to predict an earthquake and why it's almost impossible. So it's, it's a very hard problem because it's almost like there's a bunch of hidden underground butterflies that we can't see, but we know they're flapping their wings down there and they're going to create an earthquake somewhere, some when, but we can't know why because they're so deep underground. Yeah, yeah, um, pretty or much. butterflies don't live underground, so maybe it's like... What worms. lives under? Worms. Moles. There, there are a bunch of moles down there. Mole, moles that live 20 kilometers beneath the surface of the right, earth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, earthquakes do not happen because of moles. <laughs> okay, so you, you said that, um, what was it, a 60% chance that a 6.7 magnitude earthquake or greater will occur in the L.A. Basin in the next 30 years? Well, I think it's that will it will affect Los Angeles. So it doesn't have to just occur in the LA basin. It could be a wider area, but mm-hmm. I think that's the most recent prediction, or rather forecast, not prediction, right. Right. that I've seen. And so for people who, who live here and intend on living here for the next several decades, an earthquake will occur during their time in the LA basin. So what earthquake preparation tips do you have for for people who live in earthquake-prone areas like L.A.? One thing is important to note is that an earthquake will happen today, but it's very small. So you get lots and lots of very small earthquakes, and what we're worried about are the the, the much bigger earthquakes. So earthquakes above magnitude 5 or 6, they start to get pretty serious, and you need to be worried about them. People often are really quite concerned, but they also have kind of a sense of helplessness, I think, and it's important not to be worried but to be prepared because you can take a lot of steps 
I would like to say that I'm not like a professional earthquake safety person. There's lots of great advice online. So if you Google, for example, USGS, United States Geological Survey, earthquake preparedness, there are loads of great resources that I encourage people to check out. But a few tips that you can, a few steps you can take, uh, you can do things before, during and after an earthquake to make sure you're as safe as possible. So before, if you own your own home, if you're fortunate to own your own home, although anyone who's a grad student, that seems very unlikely, um, <laughs> you, can, you can get insurance, that kind of thing. Also, when you're in, in a house, you can make sure you secure heavy items. So the fridge, freezer, boiler, bookshelves, these kind of things, because they'll collapse, they'll fall in an earthquake. And if they fall on you, you're potentially going to be trapped or very badly injured. So it's really worth making sure that those are safely secured. You also, one really important thing is to have emergency supplies. So I think three days of emergency food and water is commonly recommended. A lot of Los Angeles's water comes to LA in aqueducts that cross the San Andreas Fault. And that becomes a problem when you think about what's going to happen during an earthquake on the San Andreas Fault. It's going to slide several meters. And so that means anything that crosses the San Andreas is going to get kind of sheared and so if you're trying to bring water across that fault, you might have serious problems that the, the aqueducts may well just get severed. And so we'll have serious water supply problems. So keeping some amount of water as an emergency supply is really, really important, as well as food and other emergency supplies, flashlight, emergency radio. And also, if you're in a tsunami area, make sure you have an evacuation route for if an earthquake actually does happen and you get a tsunami warning. So that's particularly relevant for people in the Pacific Northwest, for example, where there is a large subduction zone off the coast, which creates large tsunamis. And so it's important to be ready for that. So those are the kind of things you can do before an earthquake. And then during an earthquake, the watchword is dark cover and hold on. So we're actually sitting right now in the Caltech USGS Media Center, mm -hmm. which is where all of the news teams will line up outside and come here to get reports of earthquakes. And there's a big sign in the corner saying, drop, cover, hold on. It's kind of the most important thing to get out there for what happens during an earthquake. You get under a table or something that can protect your head and you hold on to it to stop it shaking away because it's going to be fairly violent shaking. You don't, for example, run outside because you, you can get hit by falling tiles and things you don't necessarily run to a doorway. You know, there's this old myth that doorways are the most stable places of the house. And so you should get into a doorway. It's much better to get under a nice sturdy table or something like that that's away from things that can fall on you, big pieces of furniture. So during an earthquake, duck, cover, hold on. That's the most important thing to remember. And then afterwards, being ready for aftershocks. Every earthquake will come with a series of aftershocks. In some cases, you can actually have aftershocks that are larger than the, the main earthquake and then that then becomes the main earthquake and the main earthquake becomes a foreshock we kind of change the labeling but you have this series of large earthquakes that follow and so you need to be ready for that to happen again ready to duck cover hold on how long between the main earthquake and the aftershock so for instance you know if i'm ducking and covering and holding on and then the, the tremors stop and i wait a minute Two minutes, so, so ten our, minutes? Aftershocks can happen over uh, weeks to kind of a month, really? depending on, wow. on, on where you are. But they decay off after the main event, but they can happen for a substantial period of time. And so it's not a case of like after a minute you're safe. They can happen for a long period of time afterwards. But later ones are likely to be smaller in magnitude, but still possibly you can feel them depending on how large the initial event was. And so, yeah, be ready for aftershocks. If you have gas, you need to make sure you know where, how to turn off your gas main to avoid gas leaks, that kind of thing. 
clear up broken glass and evacuate if you're in a tsunami zone. That's probably the most important thing. And then check if other people need help because you can often end up with people trapped in their own homes. So taking those kind of steps can make sure that you're really prepared. Obviously, at a national level, we can do things like emergency readiness drills and also making sure building codes are up to scratch so that the buildings are going to stay up. We're fortunate in the United States in that we have relatively strict building codes. A lot of people die from earthquakes because of shoddy building construction. And so making sure that your legal system and your building codes have strict guidelines about earthquake readiness is a really important component to minimizing deaths on a global scale. Northridge, for example, tragically, I think 57 people died, roughly. But if you compare that to, for example, earthquakes that happen in much more poor countries where you can get tens to hundreds of thousands of people dying, you can see how building codes and readiness and just having a a degree of, of wealth in the country can really affect what happens in the aftermath of an earthquake. That's a lot of really great information. Thank you, Ali. So turning things back to Star Trek, another instance of an earthquake occurring in Star Trek was the Next Generation episode titled A Matter of Time. And in this episode, there is an environmental crisis, not initially caused by an earthquake, but by an asteroid hitting a world called Panthara 4. And this kicked up a bunch of dust into the atmosphere and it was kind of like a nuclear winter. And in order to solve the crisis, the USS Enterprise manufactures a greenhouse effect by drilling into the crust of the planet with their phasers and releasing pockets of CO2 because the nuclear winter effect blocks sunlight from coming in, so you need to trap some of that heat. And CO2 is a good greenhouse gas, meaning that it traps infrared radiation from leaving the planet and keeps it warm and toasty. But a side effect of drilling into the crust to release this carbon dioxide is that the Enterprise inadvertently creates massive earthquakes on this planet, which presents the planet with another environmental dilemma. Captain, I'm detecting a massive earthquake on the surface. Two earthquakes. Location. Both epicenters are beneath the two southernmost drill sites, Captain. Is the forge still down there? Yes, sir. Find him. Forge here, Captain. Mosley and I are on our way back to his lab. Are you all right? We're okay, but those were pretty big, sir. If this was Earth, I'd say around an 8 or an 8.5 on the Richter scale. They note that these earthquakes um, are of 8 to 8.5 on the Richter scale. We've mentioned the Richter scale several times now. So, Ollie, I want to ask, what is the Richter scale? How do I read a number like 8, 8.5, or 6.7? So, yeah, I've mentioned earthquake sizes before, although actually... An important clarification for the earthquake nerds out there is that it's not actually the Richter scale anymore. So the Richter scale was a creation of Charles Richter and uh, also Benedict Gutenberg in the 1930s. They were both Caltech seismologists, in fact. But the Richter scale was created to measure local earthquakes in Southern California. So Southern California was a big hub of, of early seismology, particularly in the wake of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which destroyed a lot of San Francisco devoted a lot of research towards this. And so people like Richter and Gutenberg were were trying to measure the magnitude of earthquakes in Southern California and make certain mathematical statements about the relationship between earthquakes of different magnitude. And so they wanted some consistent scale, some way of measuring them. And so they came up with the the Richter scale, as it's now currently known. And it basically is a way of, of relating the amplitude of shaking that you observe at particular points 
when you observe a particular earthquake, you, you measure the shaking on these seismometers, and then you want to take that and put it into a one particular number. And so it ends up quantifying earthquakes. So you have a magnitude 7, which is quite large, down to something like 3, which is something below what you'd feel. Now, this scale had a problem in that for large earthquakes or for earthquakes that happen at large distances to your measuring apparatus, the scale kind of breaks down. And so in the 1970s, it was replaced by the moment magnitude scale, which was, I think, a creation of Hiro Kanamori, who's another professor in this department. So it's all happening here. He's just down the hall from us. He has this great office with this kind of like these huge piles of papers stacked all around the entire office. And he's been doing seismology for about 50 years at this point. So he's a, a real authority on the subject. Somebody should study the stratigraphy of papers on his desk. <laughs> <laughs> Can kind of piece together a history of his, uh, his research. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but he, um, he came up with the scale, which is a slightly different way of measuring earthquakes, but is designed to come up with approximately the same answers for similar earthquakes. So something that was magnitude 6 on the Richter scale is also going to be roughly magnitude 6 on the moment magnitude scale. But when the USGS, for example, reports earthquakes, and you hear them reported in the news, those are reported generally as moment magnitudes. They'll often be incorrectly called earthquakes on the Richter scale, but the Richter scale has been long since fallen out of use. And this scale, the moment magnitude scale, is what's called logarithmic, which means that if I take one step up on the moment magnitude scale, it means I get roughly 32 times the energy between two steps. If I take two steps up, it's 1,000 times the energy. So if I go from a magnitude 5 earthquake to a magnitude 7 earthquake, that's a 1,000-fold increase in the amount of energy released by the earthquake. So you can see how earthquakes that appear to be quite close to each other on the scale, like only two points apart, are actually much, much, much more destructive. So that's why we need to be a lot more worried about magnitude 7 earthquakes than about magnitude 5 earthquakes. And it's also why you can't just release all of the magnitude 7 earthquakes with a bunch of magnitude 5 earthquakes because you need so many of them to release the requisite energy. So on Earth, the largest earthquake we've ever seen has been about, I think, magnitude 9.5, which was in Chile in 1960. And once you get above a certain magnitude, it becomes impossible. So a magnitude 12 earthquake would require a fault larger than the size of the Earth, I think, to happen. <laughs> so you've got this kind of fundamental limit on how large earthquakes can get. All right. So in this episode, A Matter of Time, they cause the earthquakes by drilling into the crust with phaser weapons. And uh, while we don't use phasers today, we still do drill into our crust for various reasons. And I'm wondering, can earthquakes actually be caused by our drilling into the ground? Yeah, so they definitely can, although it's a little little more complicated than just drilling. So if we look at the state of Oklahoma, which previously wasn't the site of much seismic activity, in the year about uh, of roughly 2014, I think, it became one of the most seismically active parts of the, of the U.S. And this also coincides with a fracking boom, drilling for shale gas. And so the fracking process involves drilling down into uh, rock units which contain gas and oil and then pumping high-pressure fluids into there to fracture the well and so promotes the movement of gas from the rock up into the main borehole. And so this itself, this process can cause small earthquakes, but it's often incorrectly said that fracking is the main cause of these earthquakes. It's actually the disposal of wastewater. So when you drill for oil and gas, you often end up with a large amount of water coming out of the ground, and it's quite nasty. It's like very salty. It's got a lot, a lot of nasty chemicals in it. 
And you need to dispose of this stuff, and it's quite difficult to dispose of. So what drillers will often do is drill a separate hole and then pump as much water as possible down into that hole. And so they're pumping water at high pressures for a long period of time. And this can change the stress state on existing faults and cause significant earthquakes on these faults to occur. So this combination of drilling and injecting high-pressure fluids creates earthquakes up to... I think magnitude five or maybe even six. I'm not sure we even know what the limit on earthquakes that can be triggered. You mentioned uh, the Star Trek example where they drill into the earth to release carbon dioxide to create a greenhouse effect. There's actually an interesting example of a series of earthquakes that occurred in Italy in 1997 where one earthquake ruptured a fault that actually intersected with a high-pressure reservoir of carbon dioxide that was stored in rock at five kilometers depth and it actually allowed the carbon dioxide to be released it flowed along the fault and triggered a series of aftershocks as it propagated along the fault so that's kind of a nice overlap between the star trek example and kind of a real life example of this actually happening in italy wow that's very cool, but also very frightening. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, these, are, these earthquakes can be really quite damaging. It's, they're not the kind of super quakes. They're not the kind of um, the, the big one that we would expect on the San Andreas. They're still an order of magnitude or two smaller than that, but still they can be quite destructive. So you see people's houses in Oklahoma have some quite serious structural damage in places. There are also separate issues about groundwater contamination as a result of these drilling practices. So definitely something to be concerned about and something that needs a lot more studying. So that's why there are quite a lot of people who are really quite interested in these kind of processes mm-hmm. these days. Sounds like we really need to be careful. And it's uh, a demonstration of, yet again, how human civilization can actually really dramatically influence our planet. I mean, the great example that always comes to mind is anthropogenic climate change and influencing our atmosphere, but even our activities can trigger seismic shifts in, in the ground, in, in, in the lithosphere as well. Yeah, the Star Trek episode is kind of an, an interesting warning, right? Because we're now talking about geoengineering our planet with a variety of different ways. It's kind of the opposite. We want to cool the planet by potentially injecting aerosols into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight. And in the Star Trek example, they try to warm the planet by increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and then end up causing a series of unforeseen problems. And whilst the Star Trek, I think their earthquakes are 8.5, which is very, very, very large earthquake and probably larger than you can trigger by injecting wastewater, for example. It's always interesting to think about how when we play with physical systems that we don't fully understand, we can have very unforeseen consequences. And so we need to be really careful about disturbing things that are often in very fine equilibrium. Mm-hmm. All right. So while we don't have a massive starship like the USS Enterprise in orbit of Earth, We do have numerous small satellites that are studying the ground and in particular the effects of earthquakes. And Ollie, you actually get to use these satellites to study earthquakes and their impact on Earth. So what are we learning by having these satellites watching the motion of the crust? So I use a technique called interferometric synthetic aperture radar, which is uh, That's re- a mouthful. really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and basically, we, we, yeah, as you said, we have a network of satellites that are looking down at the Earth. Some of the best pictures are taken by satellites looking away from the Earth, but I have kind of been contrary in, in, in using ones that are looking downwards. So the basic idea is you fly a satellite over the surface of the Earth. They're in constant orbit around the Earth. You take a, a picture. And you then fly the satellite back again and take another picture. 
And by comparing these two images, you can measure the amount of ground deformation that's occurred between the two. And so we originally used this to measure ground deformation for really large earthquakes where the ground slips by several meters. And by measuring the ground deformation, you can try and understand how much slip has occurred underneath the Earth's surface and how much energy has been released from that earthquake. Now what we're trying to do is we're trying to use these satellites to resolve tiny millimeter scale motions. So millimeters per year of deformation, which is like, again, as I mentioned earlier, about the rate your fingernails grow. It's, it's kind of like trying to measure the width of a human hair at the bottom of a swimming pool, because you have to, when you're measuring a, you're looking through a swimming pool, you have this choppy water on the surface. It's really difficult to see what's actually going on at the bottom. And likewise, these satellites are looking through the Earth's atmosphere, which creates all kinds of distortions, and you're trying to measure these tiny, tiny signals. So a lot of the time, it's very frustrating, and most of what you're looking at is very noisy signals. But in theory, you can make really incredible measurements of what's happening to the Earth's surface. And so I'm interested in using these satellites to measure ground deformation in subduction zones, which is where one of these lithospheric plates of the outer crust of the Earth goes under another one. And as one slides under the other, the two plates get stuck and you get a buildup of energy. And that is then released in really destructive earthquakes, the biggest and most destructive earthquakes that happen on the surface of the Earth. So for example, the Tohoku Oki earthquake in 2011, which created a huge tsunami the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant, that was caused by a subduction zone under Japan. So finding out about these subduction zones is really, really important. And the promise of INSAR, as we call it, Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar, is that we can measure across the whole of Japan, for example, or across the whole of a subduction zone, we can very finely measure these deformation signals. And from that, we can calculate how much are these faults stuck beneath the Earth and how much energy are they storing up? And so from that, try and predict, or maybe forecast is the better word, what is the likely magnitude of future earthquakes based on this energy that's being stored up? Now, it's a very complicated process going from the observations to earthquake forecasting, but that is the kind of the basic idea of the technique. Wow. So you're using satellites to basically understand the small creep of the lithosphere, almost like in our rubber band analogy, how much that rubber band has stretched so that when it breaks, we can know or predict or try to forecast how much energy will be released. That, yeah, that's a very, that's a very, the simplified version of the story. Yeah. And that's the kind of the overarching goal. Uh, and then within that, there are a series of annoying steps that you have to go through to, to be able to, to make those kind of robust forecasts, which at the moment are basically impossible because the system is so noisy. There's so much going on. There's so much you have to be worried about. Besides using satellite images, I know that you're also involved in studying earthquakes by simulating them on very powerful computers. Mm. And so how is this done and what kinds of questions are you tackling with these computational simulations. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier the idea of weather forecasting and the way you construct a physical model and you then use that to kind of move time forward and see what's going to happen in the future. And this is kind of an attempt at that kind of process. You construct a physical model of the Earth with a series of mathematical equations and you then set it off and see what it does in the future. And the problem, as I mentioned earlier, is we don't know what's happening in the Earth at the moment, because it's all underground. And also, we don't have that good a constraint on the physical laws to actually use. One thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to model the San Andreas Fault, specifically the creeping section of the San Andreas Fault. So the San Andreas runs throughout the whole of California. 
in the middle of it, between Los Angeles and San Francisco, there's this 150-kilometer-long section that, rather than being stuck and storing up energy, is actually slowly creeping. It starts around the town of Parkfield, which is this tiny, tiny town in the middle of nowhere that I managed to drag my parents to when they were on holiday here, much against their will, but I think they ended up having a good time. Now, the creeping section of the fault has some really cool effects. So whenever roads and buildings cross the creeping section of the fault, they slowly get sheared in half. So there's this great winery halfway up the creeping section of the fault, which is built right on the creeping section. And so half of the building is just being taken by about 20 millimeters a year in one direction. And the other half of the building is being taken in the other direction. And so the whole floor, all the walls are slowly breaking and deforming, which is really fascinating to look at. But... The point of that is, is that this creeping section is thought to be a barrier to earthquake ruptures. So if a large earthquake happens on the locked section of the southern San Andreas, it's thought that if it hits the creeping section, it will die out. Because basically, the creeping section is an earthquake barrier. When an earthquake gets into it, it can't go any further. And we're trying to use these models to explore to what extent is that true. So what happens, for example, if the fault gets a lot weaker during an earthquake? Does that allow earthquakes from the southern San Andreas to potentially propagate into the creeping section and get through to the the northern section of the locked section of the San Andreas Fault? And we're doing this with really, really highly simplified 2D models. It's just kind of an initial exploration, and we then are going to try and scale that up to larger 3D models, more complicated models. But that is the basic idea of what we're trying to do. As with my other project the earth is so very very complicated that you're making so many approximations when you do this kind of modeling that it's a really difficult process to go from these models to being able to say anything meaningful about the earth you have to be very very careful in your kind of experiments as do all scientists because there's always a temptation to leap that careful step and just be like oh we found something and not recognize just how distinct your model is from the real earth and how much more complicated the real earth is than the model you're trying to use to model it very cool well, wineries, not just good for wine, but also for stopping earthquakes. Yep, no, it's yep. not, <laughs> not the winery, but the, what did you call it? The, the creeping um, section. Creeping section beneath this winery. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, Ali, I've just got one last question for you. As I've mentioned, you know, there are not that many instances of earthquakes in Star Trek, and when they do appear, they are just minor plot devices um, that, that occur in a story that is mostly not about the earthquake. But if you could write a sci-fi story that uses an earthquake as a prominent plot point, say a Star Trek episode or anything else. I know there was a movie called San Andreas that came out a few years ago. <laughs> um, you may have some choice words to say about the, the plot in that movie. But, um, but yeah, if you were to write your own script, mainly about an earthquake, what kind of story would you tell around an earthquake? Mm. So I think... The first thing to recognize that's, I think, difficult for scientists like me to recognize is that films that use science, they're not about the science for the most part. For the most part, they're about character and story and drama and maybe some cool visuals as well. But people don't come to the cinema or to the theater, as you call it here, to see a film about general relativistic field equations. (laughs) What they come is to see a story about exploration. So, for example, Interstellar which was Christopher Nolan's movie, which was really great and centers around the falling apart of Earth civilization and an attempt to leave planet Earth. And there's a huge black hole, which they travel to. As part of that movie, Christopher Nolan worked with Kip Thorne, who's a professor here at Caltech, to simulate that black hole as accurately as possible. 
but they still tweaked it a bit to make it more intelligible to audiences and give it more impressive visuals. And at the end of the movie, it turned out that it was all about love, right? That love was connecting them across the dimensions of space and time, which I don't think is actually a component in Einstein's general relativistic field equations. Mm -hmm. And so they they had that augmentation, which to, to make it about human characters. And so I think it's important whenever you're writing a movie or coming up with a plot point to recognize the fact that it's not about the science, it's about the human characters. So if I was writing a movie which featured an earthquake, I mean, it would probably have a very scientifically accurate earthquake, but would maybe use that as some kind of philosophical exploration about how we're not in control of our destinies and you can't control the future and you can't predict what's going to happen. Although perhaps that's why I'm a scientist and not a Hollywood screenwriter. So <laughs> I'm not sure if this is a pitch meeting. Are you, are you, kind of, are you investing in my movie or are you, are you out at this point? Uh, you know, I'm I'm just very curious. Okay. Uh, I uh, I probably don't have the funds to uh, <laughs> to make a movie uh, right now, but you know maybe we we could do uh, you know like War of the Worlds was broadcast on radio. Oh yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. fooled a lot of people into okay. thinking there was an actual alien invasion. Yeah, maybe yeah. we could do a uh, a radio show about. Uh, about an earthquake. Well, my people can contact your people, and we can we can work something out. So, <laughs> sounds great. Sounds good. All right. Well, that was a very fun and informative conversation, Ollie. I learned so much about earthquakes, and to be honest, I don't know why, but I feel a lot safer <laughs> <laughs> after hearing all of that wonderful information. It really does dispel this kind of innate fear that is natural around some kind of very dramatic, almost magical phenomenon that you don't know very much about, right? When you don't know a lot about something, it can be very scary. And when you actually put it into a framework, a scientific framework, where you can understand it from the laws of physics or the laws of geology or the laws of them together in geophysics, Mm. it really just eases my mind for some reason, even though there's still nothing I can do about earthquakes. (laughs) So thanks for joining me on this podcast, Ollie, and uh, it was a pleasure having you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a long-running fantasy of mine to be on a podcast. Some people want to be an astronaut or a racing driver, and I wanted to be on a podcast, so uh, I'm finally uh, living my dream. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Okay. That concludes episode 43 of Strange New World. I hope you learned something new about earthquakes from my conversation with Ollie Stevenson. If you're like me and live in an earthquake-prone region, remember to be prepared. Even though Ollie and his cohort are working hard to figure out how earthquakes work and how to forecast them, it's a massively difficult problem, as he said, and the unthinkable could happen with little to no warning. And yes, I did steal from a 10-year-old kid, and to find out what that was, head over to caltechletters.org, or click the link in the show notes. Caltech Letters is an entirely student-run outreach initiative that I am so honored to have written for. If you like Strange New Worlds, you are bound to find something wonderful to read on Caltech Letters. Enjoy, and I'll see you out there. I like to mix cereals. So I had three different kinds of cereal. Weetabix, bran flakes, and then some like uh, honey loops as well, which is, a lot of people just like one cereal. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's it's strange of me to like three, but I really feel quite strongly about it. And I think more people should have three. It's This is not a case where it's just like to each their own. I think people who have one cereal are, 
actually actively wrong in what they're doing, and I strongly object to them. So I like multiple cereals, okay. but not at once. Okay, I, well, okay, so I guess then you're partially wrong. <laughs> um, but you still have substantial room for improvement, I'd say. Okay.